well as our uh, Cactus Campus and our Mountain Valley Campus and then the chapel uh, next door to us and then our venue join us. Uh, I want to make a couple of comments before I pray. Uh, the most important, and some of you have maybe been waiting for this, is that we announced last week that our elder fund offering this month is going to go for a very special purpose. And so at the end of the service today and then at our, and then at our other four venues, we're going to be taking up our elder fund offering, which is a monthly offering that we take up. And this month, we do this once a year, we're going to be giving it to a special purpose outside of our church. We announced last week to San Lucas Hospital in Yucatan, Mexico. Uh, San Lucas is a hospital that we have been involved with and sent multiple mission teams to. They do about 100 surgeries a day for people from 32 Mayan villages there in Mexico, the poorest of the poor. And they do an amazing work spiritually and physically through medical missions among uh, the poor support there in Mexico. And they can't do, they can do inpatient surgery, but they can't keep patients right now overnight. So they have about $80,000 already raised toward a goal of $200,000 in order to build this wing on their hospital that will allow them to have a five-bed inpatient wing for overnight uh, people to stay there after their surgery. And so our goal is to raise $120,000 this weekend to complete their fundraising goal, and we can help them build that wing. So give generously after the service today, and we'll announce next week how the Lord provides. I, I can't wait to see. It's really a, a very worthy cause that we feel God is leading us to be a part of. Uh, Tom Schrader was here last week. Wasn't he just awesome? He really was. I, I, I love Tom so much. And, uh, you know, he's feeling so much better. As some of you might know, we, he's not been shy about this. Tom is uh, battling a disease called lupus, and so sometimes he's doing awesome, and other times he, he really struggles with his health. And I met with him this week, and I was so grateful that the Lord gave him great strength. In fact, you guys don't know this, but he said to me, he said, yeah, I, I got through last weekend. I slept all Sunday afternoon, all day Monday, and most of Tuesday morning. He said it was, I mean, it's a labor of love for him to be here and to minister to us in the Word, and he did an awesome job. He joined me in a series that I started before I, I, I left last weekend, and that's a series out of the Gospel of John that you see in your bulletin called I Believe. And we're looking at 10 faith builders, 10 aspects of Jesus that appear early on in the Gospel of John that help us believe in God through Jesus. So we looked at his presence. I helped us with that a couple of weeks ago, the fact that he never leaves us or forsakes us. Then Tom helped us look at his forgiveness last week, Jesus' forgiveness. And now we're going to take a look today at this idea of his reception of us. And I think you're going to be greatly encouraged. So with that said, let's bow and pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for your truth. And I thank you, God, that you've given a vision to this church over 50 years now as a local congregation to be very focused on your word, teaching it, living it, applying it, because we know that in the words of Jesus and the words that you've given us in the Bible, that there is life and truth and ultimately the grace we need to know you. And so I pray, God, that as we look at some of the words of Jesus now, that, God, you might encourage us, challenge us, and lift our sights beyond the here and now to what our lives can be as we believe and trust in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just want to begin today by reading the section of Scripture that is before us. And I, I did something a few years ago that now I can't ever get out of, and that is that when I ask uh, us to read the Gospels, what do we do? 
we stand. So y'all got to stand because if I don't, some of you are going to say, why don't we stand anymore for the gospel reading? But it's a good thing to stand. And I'm going to be reading from John chapter 1, eight venues and campuses stand. You guys are good. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. You can follow along in your own Bible or direct your attention to the monitor and follow along as I read the text. It says, the next day, again, John, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And you all may be seated. This is obviously John's version here of what we fondly call the calling of the first disciples. And what's interesting is that all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give an account of the calling of the first disciples. But what we need to dial into right away here today is that Mar- or Ma- John's version of this calling is markedly different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, call, or description of this calling. In other words, in their accounts, Peter and Andrew are out in a boat fishing. Jesus comes along and he calls them to follow him. And he tells them that if they do, they too can become fishers of men, not just fish. And so the account in Matthew, Mark, and Luke says that they left their fishing nets, they left their entire industry, and they followed Jesus. Markedly different from John's account here. John has Andrew initially without his brother Peter, hanging out with an unnamed disciple, and these two guys follow Jesus after John the Baptist says, look, there's the Lamb of God, and then they end up at Jesus' house, and they spend time talking with Jesus, and then and only then does Andrew go and find his brother Peter and introduce him to Jesus. So it's two very different divergent stories of the calling of the disciples. In fact, it's so divergent that some have used this discrepancy to cast doubt on the historical reliability and truthfulness of the Bible, but not so fast. Because when you look very closely at each of these accounts here, which I obviously have done, what you realize is that you're really dealing with two different callings that though they involve the same people, just as you and I interact with the same people in different ways, what we have going on here is the calling of the disciples in the Gospel of John, which I'm going to suggest to you is an earlier uh, uh, interaction with Jesus, in fact, the earliest. And then in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have what we call the apostolic calling going on there, where Jesus calls them after this event here in John to be apostles. And the reason that we see that so clearly, clearly is when you look closely at these events, this apostolic calling is when Jesus says, follow me. Not like follow in the John sense here where they follow him to his house, but follow me in the full orb sense. 
And then he says, I'll make you fishers of men. And it says that they left their nets and gave up everything and followed him. It's the apostolic calling that Jesus gave to the 12 disciples that we see recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John's reads much more differently. As Martin Luther says, this is a, and I quote, a congenial association with Christ. It's an initial meeting where they follow Jesus, but don't be misled. It's following in the general sense. They're just following him to his home. And then it uses words like seeking and come and see, and then go get your brother. I mean, clearly, this is the initial interchange with Jesus and these disciples. What we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is is more that apostolic calling that most likely happens a few weeks or months later. And the reason that this is important to note is because if this is true, and I believe that it is, then John's account here is clearly the earlier account, and it becomes the very first meeting with these would-be disciples. Don't miss this. A meeting that occurs way before these guys were believers or even followers in any full-orb sense of the word. In other words, we're getting an inside look here and at Jesus meeting these guys as seekers, receiving them into his sphere, spending concentrated time with them in a process-oriented way that eventually will lead to them, as recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, making the decision to leave everything and follow him. Don't miss this. This is profound. John is pulling back the curtain of history for you and me here, all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' very first interaction with the disciples. And as he pulls back the curtain, he allows us to see the inner workings, the machinations, the power and the profundity of what an initial divine reception looks like and how it eventually leads to faith. And as I'm going to show you today, how even this divine reception of Jesus receiving people becomes the pathway to faith. So here's how this works. Here's what we learn from this discipleship calling of the first few disciples here, complete with a divine reception. And it's our main point today, and that is that Jesus receives us as we are so that we might know him as he is. I want to repeat that because it's the only thing I want you to grab onto today. This is your handle. Jesus receives us as we are. That's what we see going on here. Why? So that we might know him as he is. Now, to see this in all of its glory, I I need to show you something here in the Gospel of John that has to do with this passage that we're focused on today, but also has to do with the Gospel of John as a whole. As many of you know, I've spent the past year reading and studying the Gospel of John, and I've reread it and reread it and studied background material on it. And when you spend a year doing something like that, you can't help but have a bird's eye macro view of what's going on in any book, let alone here the Gospel of John. And when this occurs, you realize something about the Gospel of John from chapter 1 to chapter 21 that has everything to do with our passage today and where this book is going. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, Look up at your monitors right now. You'll see a chart that I put for you there, and it's also in your bulletin. We're going to fill it out right now, and I'm going to walk you through 
What's happening here in chapter 1 with this divine reception, the initial calling of these disciples, and then I'm going to fast track you to the end of the Gospel of John, and here's what I want you to see more than anything else. I need you to see the divergence of scenes. How in chapter 1 here, we really have entry-level spiritual things going on. But by the time you get to the end of the Gospel of John, there's been a major, major transformation when it comes to these guys' lives. So what do I mean? Uh, Notice in verse 38, I'm now at the upper left on your monitors there. Notice in verse 38 there that this whole scene begins with they follow Jesus. And Jesus says to them, what are you seeking? The NIV, I think, has a pretty good paraphrase of it. Uh, The NIV says, what do you want? It's a seeker question. Jesus turns around to these two disciples following him, and he says, what are you guys doing? What is it that you're after? It's interesting. These are the very first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. That's important to note. And the very first words of Jesus here are in the form of a question, and it's a seeker question. Uh, That word seeking there, what are you seeking, is the Greek word zeteo, and it means to try to find something, to desire something, to inquire about something. It's fascinating. In Genesis 3, verse 9, the very first question in all of the Bible is God, when he's looking for Adam in the garden after Adam has sinned and Adam is hiding, and do you remember what God asked him? Where are you? (laughs) Where are you, Adam? So God has always been after seekers that hide from him. And Jesus is asking a very similar question here. He's saying, what are you guys seeking? What are you after? It's fascinating. By the time the Gospel of John ends, here's the last question in the Gospel of John. Look at the upper right now. Jesus will ask his disciples, particularly Peter, do you love me? Now, isn't that a very different question? Going from what are you seeking to do you love me? Uh, one of intimacy and closeness. I don't have time to go into this today, but, but I read a book on my break last week on the Trinity. It was a book called Delighting in the Trinity. And the main point of this book is that God has existed in a Trinity for all of eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in mutual self-satisfying love. And that what Jesus came to do was to invite us into the relationship of the Trinity. So when Jesus says that I and the Father are one and that we can be one with Jesus and then united to the Father, that's Jesus bringing us into the Trinity. And that's what he's doing with Peter here. He's saying, Peter, do you love me? Because if you love me, you're going to know the Father and you're going to start to enjoy the joy of the Trinity through loving me. Is that not rich? So you go from what are you seeking to do you love me? A huge divergence between chapter 1 and chapter 21. Now, as you're thinking about that, uh, notice further that in chapter 1, as Jesus says, what are you seeking? They give him a title. They say, rabbi. They call him rabbi. Uh, That word there means teacher or great one. And what you need to know is that it's a seeker's title. It was a common Jewish title given back then to any religious dude who you were following. So if somebody had the credentials of being a good Jewish leader, you were given the title of rabbi. So there's nothing special about them calling Jesus rabbi here. It's a seeker's title given to a religious guy that would be a dime a dozen back then. But then fast track yourself to the end of the Gospel of John, and here's the last titles given to Jesus by doubting Thomas after he realizes that Jesus has truly rose from the dead. He says, my Lord and my God. 
I would submit to you that's a vastly different title than rabbi, don't you guys think? I, I, I mean, these are titles of deity. These are titles of submission. These are titles that you only use for God. So they go from rabbi to my Lord and my God. And, and then notice thirdly here, after they call him rabbi, now this is just interesting. He says, what are you seeking? And they say, rabbi, where are you staying? That's, that to me just seems like at first glance a non-response, doesn't it? I mean, if I say to Rick, who's in the first row here, you know, um, you know hey, do you want to go out for lunch? And he looks at me and says, what are you having for dinner? I'd say, what are you smoking? I mean, it just, it would not be a, it would, just, would not feel like you answered my question. And, and when Jesus, or when they asked Jesus, where are you staying? And, 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 I'm sorry, when he says, where are you seeking? And they respond by saying, where are you staying? It just doesn't seem like much of a response. But here's what most commentators point out, and I kind of like this. What they're probably getting at, and this is rich, is basically saying, can we spend some more time with you? They're in a public setting here. He's saying, what are you seeking? Which is kind of a rich question. They say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Can we come home with you? Can we spend some more time with you? Because the conversation and questions we have really aren't for this setting. I think that is probably what's going on here. And what adds real richness to this is that that word staying there is the Greek word meno, which means to abide. It's a rich, rich word used hundreds of times in the New Testament. So a better translation here would actually be them saying, where are you abiding? And the reason that's important is because then you get to the end of the Gospel of John, and what does Jesus now say using this word? He says, abide in me. It's a play on words if I've ever seen one. He's essentially saying, you asked me initially, where am I abiding? Now, after spending three years with me, let me say something to you. Abide in me, and you will find what your soul is looking for. So we've gone from, where are you, what are you seeking to, do you love me? From rabbi to my Lord and my God, from where are you staying to abide in me? And then fourthly, just so that we get this dichotomy here, guys, this scene ends in chapter 1 with them saying, in a very positive way, we have found the Messiah. And yet what's fascinating is what most Bible experts point out, and you've got to see this, is that they really didn't have any clue about what they were saying. Have you ever gotten the answer right, but you don't understand why you got it right? I mean, that's what's happening here. They said, we found the Messiah. But if Jesus had said, now, now define that term for me very carefully, would you? They would have said, well, you're, you're going to be kind of like David and come back and set up shop and you're going to be a priestly and kingly and physical deliverer to bring back the glorious days of Israel. And what would Jesus have said? Uh, no, not quite, not really. You got the right term. You got the wrong idea for right now. See, Jesus clearly showed them what Messiah meant three years later, 18 chapters later, 19 when on the cross, he says his very last words on the cross, it is, say it with me, finished. What's finished? His atonement for our sins, his death on a cross so that we might know God. That's what's finished. And that's what Messiah, deliverer, means. He came to deliver us from our sins. And again, the disciples over time eventually got this, but I don't think they got it in chapter 1 here. So add all this up. This is the view that we get when we look at the Gospel of John as a whole. 
these initial disciples, inquirers really, go from seeking and calling him rabbi to where you stay in, to a political, physical messiah, to eventually, do you love me? My Lord and my God, abide in me. It is finished. Salvation is secure. In other words, when you read the Gospel of John as a whole, it's a total transformation that you read about. It's an extreme makeover of one's life and soul that is seen here. These normal, everyday, semi-religious fishermen go from being the uninitiated to being fully baptized. They go from dipping their toes in the water in chapter 1 to doing a deep dive by the time you get to chapter 21. They go from not really believing very much in Jesus to finding satisfaction and sufficiency through full abandonment to him. And yet what we don't want to miss, once you understand that, is what links these two realities together. Now watch this. What is it that bridges this initial seeking to the fully finding and following? It's found in verse 39 of our account here when Jesus says these very simple, but profound words in response to their desire to spend more time with him. Look at your monitors. Jesus says, come and you will see. And it says right after that, so they came and saw. As one author says in commenting on this passage, three very simple words. He says, Jesus welcomed them. He said to them when they were seeking him, you want to be in my sphere of influence, you want to find out more about me, come, be with me, and you will see. And what's fascinating about that phrase, you will see, is that what most Bible experts point out is that it's in the future tense in the Greek, with the implication being it's a promise that as they hang in there and seek, that they will find. They will see what their hearts are longing for, which is to know God. And I would submit to you guys that it's this divine reception of Jesus where he received them as they were, ignorant and confused, but interested and willing to seek, and that in receiving them as they were, that became the hinge, the bridge for them eventually knowing him as he is. You see, this is what many of us need to be reminded of today or even see for the very first time. This is how Jesus operates, I'm telling you. He loves to hang out with tax collectors and sinners, quite frankly, more than religious people. At least that's how it was in the Gospels. I mean, he loves to receive people as they are, mess and all, not to leave them that way, mind you, but to eventually transform them into fully devoted followers of himself. And what I need you to see is that it's this reception by Jesus that makes all the difference. It's his acceptance of others that became the key that drew them in. I mean, think of all the stories that you know. The woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, Matthew at his tax collecting booth, Zacchaeus climbing a tree, a sick woman touching him, Nicodemus coming to him at night, I mean, these are all stories from the Gospels, and they all got one thing in common, guys, and that is that Jesus received these people initially as they were and then interacted with them in profound and life-altering ways that would forever change the fabric of their spiritual lives as they eventually came to trust and believe in him. He says, come and you will see. And it's his reception 
that becomes a hinge on the door to knowing him. But here's what I don't think we get today or many of us have forgotten as now maybe veteran Christians, and that is that this whole process takes time. Amen? It takes time. You know, I gave you a very quick flyover here a second ago from the Gospel of John. And, um, you know, the danger of doing a flyover like that is what you fail to realize is that from John chapter 1 to John chapter 21 is how many years? I'll give you a hint. Three. Three years occurs in Jesus' public ministry from this first interchange with the disciples to then their do you love me and uh, my Lord and my God and abide in me. In other words, during those three years, there were lots of ups and downs, lots of good and bads, lots of encouragements and lots of rebukes, lots of confusion, and then lots of aha moments. In other words, it teaches us there are no quick fixes. There's no shortcutting the process at all. I mean, as we all know, spiritual growth is like this, three steps forward and then two steps backward, right? Three steps forward, and then two, and then sometimes it's two steps forward, and oops, three steps backward. But, but hopefully, and this is the way God wants it to work, we're inching our way toward growth and maturity all along. That's what the Gospels show us, that eventually we're going to understand, eventually we're going to submit, eventually we're going to become sold out. That's what God's after. But it all begins with Him receiving us as we are, so that we can know him as he is. And it's a process. You know, I'll blow you away even more. I did a little bit of study this week. I mean, I didn't have to study much because I know this stuff, but I, I thought, you know, well, in the Gospels, it's at least a three-year process for an eventual understanding after this divine reception. And then I started thinking of other parts of the Bible, and I thought, gosh, it was even longer for some other people. Have you ever noticed that? Like Moses, like after Moses killed that guy in, in, in Egypt way before he led them out of the promised land, it says in Exodus 2 that for many days he went into seclusion in the desert, remember that, and, 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 and had to do business with God. Many days he had to after becoming a follower of God. David, as we know, one of the greatest kings that ever existed, had to deal with pride, anger, lust, and it took years for him to work that stuff through. And then even Paul the Apostle, who's my hero in the New Testament, I named my son after him for crying out loud, Paul the Apostle says after he came to Christ, it says he went down to Arabia for three years before he introduced himself to any of the apostles. And here's where it gets confusing. This is in Galatians 1 and 2. It then says, Paul says, and then 14 years later. And you should think, oh, wait, 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 what is it? Three years or 14 years? Like that's a pretty big difference. And Paul's saying, well, at least three. And in some issues of my character, it was going to take 14 years for a guy that was going to be used to write half the New Testament by God. And so the point is clear. The greatest heroes of the Bible had the kind of spiritual experience with God, now don't miss this, guys, which began with an initial reception in which God took them as they were, and then through a long process of formation and change with lots of grace and truth, lots of ups and downs, they eventually came to a point of profound faith and life-altering abiding. The journey from John 1, complete with what are you seeking to rabbi, to where are you staying, to we have found the Messiah, can lead to the end of John where you say, do you love me and my Lord and my God and abide in me? It can lead there. 
But it all hinges on this reality. Do you know that he receives you? And are you willing to be in it for the process? And as we're going to see in a second here, are we going to allow some of the people around us to be in process? You know, as I gave some thought this week to my own uh, life, I've been a Christian now for 34 years, I realized that, um, gosh, this has been my journey as well. I, uh, Neil teased me earlier about being thicker in the middle section than I was years ago when I first met Neil. And uh, he's right, this is my letter jacket from high school. It, it has shrunk over the years. I think I washed it too many times. And uh, this is my varsity letter jacket from 1982, class of 82, Chagrin Falls High School, where I, I, I grew up. And I keep this in my home office as a reminder, now don't miss this, of who I was and now who I am. And all I can tell you is that it took a very, very long time. I haven't arrived yet, but I, you guys didn't know me back then. My dear wife did. And I got to tell you, even after I accepted Christ, it was a long haul. I accepted Jesus on March 11th, 1981. It was very real. I remember praying a prayer and receiving the Lord. I, it was with a Youth for Christ staff worker at my high school. And it was a very real moment. I, I know that I understood the gospel and I received his forgiveness. About a month later, there was a party in Chagrin. There wasn't much to do in a town of 5,000. And so there was a party and I went to this party and I had discovered alcohol probably a year earlier. I knew it was wrong, but I, I drank an entire fifth of gin that night at this party. To this day, I can't even stand the smell of gin uh, because of that event. And I blacked out. I'd never had that happen before. I blacked out, didn't remember anything about the evening. And I woke up on my parents' dining room floor at four in the morning in the middle of winter with the back door wide open, and I had no idea how I got there. I shut the back door and groggily went up to bed, and for the next 48 hours, I felt like 100 pounds of sin on a popsicle stick. I just felt awful. Monday morning, I went to school, and it was a talk of the school. Jamie had gotten drunk and didn't remember what he did, and, you know, and, and then, then a few people were even saying, and isn't this the guy that's like going to campus life and claims to be a Christian, and, you know, let's, let's define hypocrite that way. When the campus life leader came on campus that day, Joe, he's been a dear friend ever since, he's got led me to the Lord, he uh, said he knew something was up right when he walked into the sanctuary, in the sanctuary, into the, into the uh, cafeteria. He says he walked in and every eye looked at me and then every eye looked at him. And he said he knew something had happened over the weekend. So he said to me, do you want to go for a walk after school? And I thought, no, I really don't want to talk to you about any of this. And, but I knew I needed to. And so I, um, I said, yeah. And I can still remember walking around that, that cinder track at Chagrin Falls High School. And Joe did something that day that I'll never forget. He took a letter out. I don't know, maybe he prepared it. I don't know. And, and you can now get this letter on the internet. And he handed me a letter and I was so dense spiritually and in so many ways, and, 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 and I didn't see this coming. He ended me this letter, and he, he folded the bottom of it so I couldn't see who it's from. And he said, I want you to read this. And then when you're done reading it, you're going to turn it over and see who it's from. I'll read you a portion of it. It says, I just had to write you to tell you how much I love you and care for you. Yesterday, I saw you walking and laughing with your friends, and I hoped you'd want to walk with me too. So I painted you a sunset to close your day. I whispered a cool breeze to refresh you. I waited and you never called, but I just kept on loving you. I watched you fall asleep last night. I wanted so much to touch you. You didn't even think of me, however, but I still stayed with you. The next day, I exploded a brilliant sunrise into a glorious morning for you, but you woke up late, you rushed off to school, and you didn't even notice. I love you. If only you'd listen. 
I really do love you. My love for you is deeper than the ocean and greater than any need in your heart. If you'd only realize how I care, I'd even die for you. My dad sends his love. I want you to meet him. He cares too. Fathers are just that way. So please call me soon. No matter how long it takes, I'll wait because I love you. I I remember reading that, and again, I was so dense, I thought, I wonder who it's from. And I turned it over. (laughs) And surprise, it says, your friend Jesus. And I remember thinking, wow, he, he really loves me that much, and he forgives me for what I did. And it was I was kind of wrestling with it in that moment. And some of you are thinking, wow, and that was the change, right? No. Next weekend, I got drunk again. Weekend after that, got drunk again. Spent most of my junior year and senior year drunk. Uh, Joe hung in there with me. We went to Bible study regularly. He kept helping me, saying, you know, hang in there, you know. You got to get over this. Jesus loves you. He's with you. Went off to college. Spent the first three months at college, what? Drunk. Joined a fraternity and became the, the social chairman of the fraternity, which means that I bought all the beer, and that, that was my reputation, and, and all of that. All the while, feeling very guilty about what I was doing, knowing that I, I, I was a Christian, because I really believe I accepted Christ. In fact, there were times where when I would travel, I would take a Bible with me just in case things got too bad. I wanted to have the book near me, and, and, that, and that's how bad I felt. And in November of my freshman year, I came back to Chagrin Falls for Thanksgiving break, and I met a friend. It was actually a wild story. I, I was having, again, I, I was just so out of control. I, I, I had my orange down jacket on. You guys remember the Midwest, it gets cold. I had my orange down, down jacket on. And I was going to another party. And this jacket was my favorite jacket because it could fit a six-pack of beer in all of its pockets. So I had beers in all of my pockets. And I went to this party, and I think I was on about my second beer, and I saw my good friend Bill that I went to high school with. And uh, Bill just looked at me and shook his head. And he said something like, you're such a loser. And he sat down with me. He said, you know, both of us goofed off way too much in high school. Since I've gone to college, I've gotten very serious about my relationship with the Lord. And I realized how much he loves me and that life is too short to mess around. So funny, Joe had been telling me that stuff for like two years. I I mean, Joe had told me those words a thousand times. For some reason that night, I sobered up, literally. I went home that night, and I watched this. And I sat at the same dining room table that I was passed out on two years before. And I opened up the Gospel of Matthew, and I read half the Gospel of Matthew and all the book of Philippians. I had no idea what I was reading. I thought Jesus wrote it all. I didn't know anything back then. But I knew my life was going to be different. And I said to God that night, I said, I'm done messing around. My life is yours. I promise you I will follow you. I will never, ever, ever go back to that life again. I called my friend Joe the next morning. I told him what I'd done at two in the morning. And he was kind of worried about me. He said, well, hey, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. You might fall again and da-da-da. And I said, no, you don't understand. I said, my life is different. My life is his. I get it. I'm not going back. And since that day, I never have. I've struggled. I've had lots of ups and downs since then. There are days where I, I never doubt my Christianity. I doubt whether I should be your pastor. But there are days that I, 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 I struggle deeply in my life but I know that he is with me. I know that he is mine, and I know that that I am his. Now, now, here's my point in telling you all that. That's such a profound moment for me. The reason I tell you all that is because during that two-year period from when I accepted Christ to when I really, if you will, submitted, I'm so glad I had a campus life leader that kept affirming to me, now, now don't miss this, he has received you. 
And he has received you as you are so that you might know him as he is. You know, it's funny, I had friends back then that would look at me and say, how can you call yourself a Christian? You're such a hypocrite. You really think you're a Christian? And I go to Joe and go, I can't be a Christian, Joe. I mean, I, I, it's, just, it's not, it's, and he'd say, no, you don't understand. I was with you. You did receive Christ. You're just a mess. You need to learn what repentance is. You need to learn to walk with him, and we're going to help you do that. And he kept telling me, he has received you. He has received you. And that reception eventually is what drew me back to him. Romans 2 verse 4 is one of my favorite verses. It says that his kindness leads us to repentance. See, many of us think it's the opposite. Many of us think we got to get tough with people. Man, we got to whack them over the head and da-da-da to lead them to repentance. Well, I don't know, maybe sometimes. But more so, God says, it's my kindness that leads you to repentance. So why is all of this important? Why all of this talk of seeking and reception and process and time? I want to close today with two very important questions for two very different groups of people here and then in our campuses and our venue. Here are the questions. Here's the first one. Do you know that Jesus receives you? And are you committed to seeking him through the process? You see, some of you here today are pretty beat up, but you still have a lot of interest in Jesus and you're still seeking him. You're at John 1 right now in your life. And I'm so glad that you're here. And if you don't hear anything else today, just hear that he does receive you. I know that as much as I'm standing here today, I know that he receives you. But please also hear that he receives you so that you can come and stay where he is and seek him so that you might know him as he is and allow him to change you from the inside out. I love how John Calvin, the great reformer, says it about this passage that we looked at earlier where he, Jesus, or the disciples say, where are you staying? And they show this interest in Jesus. And John Calvin says that we need to be careful to not, and I quote, sniff at the gospel from a distance. I like that visual. Sniff at the gospel from a distance. Because the disciples, ignorant and seeking as they were, drew close to Jesus because they knew he received them. And my message to you today is he receives you, and it's good to draw close. Randy Stonehill said years ago in one of his songs, his grace is not intended as a place to wipe your feet. And he's right. He gives you his grace. He receives you. But for the purpose that you stay in the ring with him and allow him to do his work in you. I'm so glad in those early days, and I could tell you multiple stories, couldn't I, Kim, ever since then, of where I'm glad I stayed in the ring. I'm on the ropes, I'm beat up, I'm taking gut punches left and right, but I'm in the ring with God. Why? Because he receives me, and that's his grace. Stay in the ring with him. And then a second question, and with this we'll be done and move on to our elder fund offering that I have for another group of you here today, but a more, maybe more important group for this question is are we gonna allow those around us to be in process to be received by Jesus and allow him to do his work in his time. See, here's the problem with Christians today. We give a hearty amen to his grace. We give a hearty amen to the fact that he receives us. And then we find some Christian in our sphere of influence that doesn't quite have his or her act together as much as we do. And what do we do? When are you going to get your act together? You know, grace has its lengths, and you're at the end of that length. And I sit there and go, since when did grace have its length? Really? Tell me about that. Because I'm sure grace, I'm sure glad that grace doesn't have its length for you. 
See, part of the problem with becoming a Christian is that we, one, forget where we've come from, and secondly, we forget where we still have to go. Amen? Because part of being a Christian is that you get a handle quickly over time on some of those outward sins, like I haven't been drunk since 1982, you know, so we get a handle on those outward sins. But what about all those inward ones you're still dealing with? I mean, last I looked, gossip is a sin of the flesh. Last I looked, impatience is the antithesis of love. Last I looked, unkindness is the antithesis of love. Got a problem with any of those in your life right now? I do, and I've been a Christian for 34 years. And and so the reality is we've got to remember that. We need to remember that if you break one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of it. We're all in need of grace. We all need his reception, and we need to stop judging people so harshly. You know, as Tom mentioned to us last week, the reason that we're doing this entire Compelled by Grace vision in, in great, great part, we have three reasons, but one of the great reasons is for the 87% that aren't going to church today here in our town. We want to have the kind of church community in all of our campuses and here at Shea where they can come and be a part of us and seek God among us, which is eminently biblical. But they're not going to come if they sense that we're not going to allow them to be in process. Amen? Are we ready and willing to allow them to be in process? I am. I hope you are. Because if we're not, I don't think God's going to woo them here. If he senses in our heart that we're all for divine reception up to a point, if we're all for divine reception for what he did for us 40 years ago, if that's what he senses, then they're not going to come. But if they alternately, if they sense that we are a church that is radically committed to the values of Jesus, to hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and allowing them to be a part of a seeking community, then there'll be no stopping us as God wants to use us to be a prevailing church here in Phoenix. I'm convinced of that as the day is long. So are you willing to allow people to be in process, received by Jesus, doing his work in his time? I hope that you are. So I mentioned earlier, we're going to be taking up our elder fund offering today. It's a special day for us. We've done this for relief work in Haiti, for relief work over in the Philippines, for we've done this for the Luis Palau organization. We did it for neighborhood ministries a couple years ago. Now it's San Lucas Hospital in Valladolid, Yucatan, Mexico. And so I hope you're prepared to give generously. Uh, as the ushers come forward here and at our venues and campuses, would you bow with me and let's pray. God, I am so grateful today that you have received me. That, Lord, even in my very lost state years ago, you received me into fellowship with yourself, and you worked with me all the way up to the point of belief, and then even, Lord, after belief, to get to a point of radical submission to you. And, God, I thank you for your grace, and I thank you that your grace operates that way. And I pray for these dear ones here today that as they apply this to their own lives, the reception of Jesus, and then, Lord, even to those around them, that, God, we would be men and women of magnanimous grace and magnanimous truth knitted together, found in the reception of Christ. God, as we give now generously to those much less fortunate than us, I pray, God, that you would bless this offering, use it for that which is intended, Lord, to minister richly, spiritually and physically to those in need in Mexico. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.